our breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Hello everyone, we are here on Thursday, breakfast, 3CR, the best team in the world with Dean and Grace. How are you today? Good morning, uh, Rashida. Good morning, Grace. Good morning. It's a lovely weather, don't you think? Yeah, it's beautiful outside. It was drenched. Yeah, I think the farmers need it, so that's uh, very, very good. So we are very busy today, so let's get started. But before, 3CR is proud to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Traditional, sorry, Kulin, sorry, I am French, I apologize. That's okay. Deeply from my heart. (laughs) Traditional owners of the land from which we transmit people-powered radio. Radical radio, Radio. people-powered. I I, I think Grace and I love to hear you say the word Kulin. That's why why we keep making you do it. (laughs) And our listeners can tell that, you know. You're not really from Ballarat or Bendigo, so <laughs> it's all good. Um, what's on the show today, Rashida? So we have amazing guests today. So we have we have a recording. Oh, actually, it's a live live, yep. live interview with Dr. Bruce Lindsay. He's from Public Land Advocacy Network Group, and we are going to talk about ribbons of history, a conversation about the ecological, cultural, and social value of Victorian roadsides. Yeah, which is, uh, I thought it was quite weird because a lot of us spend a lot of time on the road, especially coming up to Christmas, going away. Yes. And I wonder if anybody ever notices the type of work that's going on on the roadsides. Yeah, you know, I you, never you, noticed. No, yeah, it's yes. good to hear what um, PLAN are doing. And then at 7.30 we've got... Margaret Sinclair, so she's the chess chairperson of Refugee Action Collective and this is, I'm very passionate about this interview, we're going to talk about a rally on Human Rights Day December 10th, we're going to talk about the current situation in Manus Island, Mm -hmm. which is dread like it's, I don't even have words I was like literally crying watching the news yeah, it's um, It's terrible it's terrible news to to have people just sort of Mm. left out there um, Left to die, basically. basically. But we are playing with words, you know. Yeah, yeah. You no. know, like in Commonwealth country, something I've noticed is like all about syntax and wording. No, no, we didn't let them die. We just removed water. We removed healthcare. Guards, we removed yeah, doctors. we removed doctors, but we didn't kill them. And at seven forty-five, um, we're going to talk to Stephanie Price um, from the West Heidelberg Community Legal, talking about. Um, the public housing renewal program and what that means for people living in public house housing across Melbourne and also the rest of us as well. A few, there's a few estates that they're, they're planning and working actually on. Actually, quite a lot of estates, and mm. they're um, selling the land to uh, developers, which is really nice. What oh, we should be doing geez. with our publicly owned assets. A lot, a lot more mustangs on the road that you have to deal with from all yeah. those guys making hell of a lot of money. And after yeah. eight. Um, We'll be talking to Margot Foster from the RDSDS, which is a Victoria Street Drug Solutions. She's a spokesperson um, uh, about a month ago, well, in August, at the end of August, we spoke to Craig, mm-hmm. who was one of the residents there, and they'd had a rally about the safe injecting rooms. And we know two days ago that uh, Daniel Andrews and his government, um, yeah, approved the safe injecting room trial. So this is a follow-up interview. Yeah. yeah. It still has to go through Parliament. 
Yes. So it's yeah. not a given that it will happen. And, and even but if it does, it's, it's a two-year trial, which is, uh, from what Margot was saying, and she'll tell us a little bit more about it, is going to be under rigorous, rigorous. Oh, yeah. You know, like I think yeah. she, she sort of said to me, in Sydney, for the last 10 years, they've just been just under the pump in yeah. terms of, you know, what they have to deliver, how they do mm-hmm. it. Um, even though Sydney's been running for a long time, it's still probably not really something that they feel safe about it continuing, even though it's been there for 10 years. So yeah. it's a, it's a tr- tough 24 months ahead, but we'll hear from Margot after 8 o'clock, and that will be the show. 3CR is very proud to announce the launch of the Beyond the Bars 2017 CD. OK, Papa, you're up to go and see the bail justice. I don't want to go and see him. I say, no, nah, I won't worry about it, you know. Sure enough, here comes the truck. I'm going to Dame Phyllis. Come along to Mesa at 184 Gertrude Street, Fitzroy, on Thursday the 2nd of November from 6 to 8pm. The launch will feature a live panel discussion on Aboriginal incarceration, Q&A and deadly music. Oh, like, I don't regret being in jail, not one bit. Solitude and centeredness is difficult to find in the centre of chaos. So this has become, unfortunately enough, a place to be by myself and away from all that other stuff. And, and there's, less, there's less chaos in here than there is out there. Beyond the Bars 2017 CD launch, Thursday 2nd of November, upstairs at Mesa, 6 till 8pm. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Celebrate International Day of People with Disability at the Victorian Disability Sport and Recreation Festival. Featuring over 30 exhibitors and three activity zones, come and try different modified sports and watch a disabled water skiing demonstration. This is a free, accessible, family-friendly event. Friday the 1st of December from 10am to 3pm at Crown Riverwalk. For more information, visit dsr.org.au. 3CR supporter. It's fiesta time at Pepper Tree Place. Indulge in the magic of fiesta in the beautiful garden surrounds at 512 Sydney Road, Coburg. Located opposite the old Pentridge Prison, Pepper Tree Place is a community powered garden and nursery. 11th of November, 10 till 4 pm, Fiesta will feature a fabulous musical lineup with Jukebox Racket, Ukulele Yui, Tony Swain, George Washing Machine, and the Thornberries. Sustainable lifestyle and garden workshops run all day for free. Our pop up cafe serves great coffee and treats, plus barbecue and bakery serving hot foods and garden fresh salads. All welcome at this family friendly, alcohol free day. A 3CR supporter. Oh, 
celebrate International Day of People with Disability at the Victorian Disability Sport and Recreation Festival. Featuring over 30 exhibitors and three activity zones, come and try different modified sports and watch a disabled water skiing demonstration. This is a free, accessible, family-friendly event. Friday the 1st of December from 10am to 3pm at Crown Riverwalk. For more information, visit dsr.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Uh, we're back on 855am. Before we go to our next guest, interestingly, um, I remember when I was at school, we used to take uh, trips to the Northern Territory. The school we used to take uh, the boys in Year 10 up to the Northern Territory to climb. Then it was called Ayers Rock, but... Um, Obviously now it's called Uluru, and so I just was going through the papers, and there's a Vox Pop where it says, do you support the ban on climbing Uluru? Funnily enough, there's four people, and it's probably the first time I've ever seen it go 50-50. They've <laughs> got two yeses and two noes. Um, the, the people that say no, they go, no, it's a lifetime thrill if you get the chance, but I only made it halfway up. The other person says, yeah, I think you should be able to climb it as long as you don't damage or graffiti it. <laughs> yeah, so walking on it is not going to do any damage at all. I, 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 I've never been up there. I'd like to be up there, uh, and I've seen pictures of it. I would say when you get there, your first instinct would be you want to get to the top for selfish reasons. But I wonder. I've been there, my I didn't have the instinct to get up to the top. You like, didn't? Reg- no. Yeah. yeah. Regardless of all. There's two things. This is going to sound really bad, but like it's really steep. Mm. As well as like being completely yeah. culturally insensitive, which yeah. obviously I would, I don't want to do that because it means a lot um, for the traditional owners up there. So I wouldn't do that. Because I, because I, I was under the impression that you couldn't climb it anymore; that they stopped it uh, over, you know, ten years ago, a long time no, ago. No. But um, I have seen one of those travel shows where there was, I think, there's a an indigenous group who run the tools, not necessarily run by, or you could climb up by yourself, you'd obviously have to pay to go and climb. Mm. Um, so I just didn't, I was very confused about it. So it's interesting that this has come up. Um, I think because the, the traditional owners up there are talking about banning it outright. Yeah, yeah. Because they've had soft bans where there's big signs that say, please do not climb on and the And people rock. still it's, do. You know, uh, um, yes. sacred place and we don't want you to doing this and people do it all the time. Which then means a fence might have to be built around it, which then, you know, would ruin what is naturally a beautiful landscape. I think there might already be a fence. I've got to get, I've got to get <laughs> up there. I've got to get up there. Yeah, well, fair enough. I too. think when you, because I walked around the outside of it and I'm pretty sure this was like when I was a teenager, which is a long time ago now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I'm pretty sure there is a fence, which means you can't actually go up to the rock in a lot of places. Yeah, I know, but I won't say which paper it is. It's the first time I've been doing this this show in a long time <laughs> where they've actually had 50-50 instead of just going one way or the yeah. other. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the two yeses, I'd support a ban if that's what Indigenous leaders in the area are suggesting is one. Um, and one of them says, yes, if it's sacred to Indigenous people, we should not climb it. We must respect sacred places, mm-hmm. which um, that's you know, right. makes sense. Um, we're going to try and get Dr. Bruce Lindsay on to give us an insight about the cultural and social values of Victorian roadsides in just a moment. So that was a track called Still Goes On by Lou Bennett and the Sweet Cheeks. 
Ah, the sweet cheeks. Um, it's time now for our next guest, um, the Environment Justice, uh, Environmental Justice, Justice Australia, um, who we've, we've had a few times here. They're a citizen-funded, not-for-profit, public interest legal practice who use the law to protect and restore Australia's environment. And they are... Uh, have been working with and are associated with uh, Public Land Advocacy Network Group, I think. Um, and today there is a forum which is going to be held at um, uh, the Green Building in Carlton to talk about the ecological, cultural and social value of Victorian roadsides. To find out a little bit more, we are joined by Dr Bruce Lindsay, who is going to be one of the speakers. Good morning, Bruce. Good morning. Thanks for the invitation to speak. Thanks for joining us on 3CR. Now, can yeah, you give can, can you give us a bit of a brief um, rundown as to how, I guess this this all came about? It's it's um you know I was just saying to my my uh, co-host here that you drive down Victorian roads and you sort of never take notice of what's on the roadside. Yeah, very good point. Um, in fact, Victorian roadsides are one of the most important. Um, ecological resources across Victoria because as you would see if you drive around a lot of Victoria a lot of it's been cleared and it's farmland or residential development or something like that except those big areas that are say national parks in the Alps or the Grampians or something. In fact um, roadside reserves are one of the largest remaining areas in most of our landscapes where there is still some kind of remnant or intact native vegetation Um, um, so vegetation that was there prior to settlement and clearing mm-hmm. um so that's that's first of all probably one of the key things key prompts in some ways in why um these groups have come about or, or this kind of movement's come about um just to give you some figures on that particular question there was a an investigation done a few years ago um which in, on remnant native vegetation in victoria which included um an assessment around how much was left on victoria's roadside road reserves including there's both used and unused road reserves, and it's more than half a million hectares. That's probably 11 times the size of Wilson's Promontory if you added it all up. Mm. Um, the, the important thing about that, of course, is that um, because it's on road reserves, it's usually in highly fragmented you know, landscapes and it's quite precarious. So there's a lot of important ecological um, vegetation um, on our on our roads and that includes you know major roads like freeways and so forth and highways but also a lot of those little back roads um, in, that are looked after by local government and so forth um, that actually are you know quite lovely to drive down or walk down because of this um, so that's kind of part of the context of, of um, uh, what is being what we're speaking about today or are we introducing today there's other speakers uh, the other important um, factor is what what's happened in the last few years is um, increasingly the ecological characteristics of those road reserves um, continue to be under threat from from various for various reasons. Um, one of the significant threats is simply clearing of native vegetation on mm. road reserves um, or poor management. Um, so. Um, the, the key road managers, obviously in Victoria, are going to be Vic Roads yeah. and just to a lesser degree local government. But Vic Roads um, obviously undertakes very big road building projects and management projects across Victoria. Um, some of those um, can have very big impact on vegetation on, on road reserves 
um, including, you know, its removal. So um, a few years ago, there was some big controversial road management, um, road clearing cases, um, circumstances where Vic Roads were seeking to, you know, widen roads in particular, like the Western Highway, yeah. out past Beaufort was an example. Um, and, you know, there, and this would, this required the clearing of some, you know, beautiful big old red gums and, yeah. and a lot of other big old trees and that the locals were quite concerned about. Um, so that was one of the examples where, you know, a local community group then mobilised around protecting those trees um, and seeking to, you know, either stop or reduce the impact um, on those road reserves. So there was there was a number of examples like this have occurred over Victoria, around Victoria in in the last few years, and around that various community groups, community campaigns that were quite active in engaging with Vic Roads and trying to either stop or or minimise the amount of loss and damage to native edge um, out of those projects and. Partly, what's happened is that those groups have, have continued to fight over those fight for that for that protection and and for those you know for that remnant vegetation. And, and, and Bruce, together, this, yeah. this is it's quite um, it's, it's unique too in that Vic Roads have have had um, uh, you know a, a page on their website for people to be able to contribute to how they deal with roadside memorials in what can they do for those things. But when it comes to the vegetation and obviously the clearing, how proactive have they been in regards to letting, you know, people outside those communities get involved to, to give them a bit of a, I guess, a management plan to be able to keep that vegetation but still build the roads? Yeah. Well, Vic Road's engagement in this entire question about environmental management and vegetation management has ebbed and flowed, we might say, over the years. Back uh, like a few decades ago, they had a they did have a roadside conservation committee, which was quite active, and did do a lot of good work to study the, what was on roadside reserves and also look at protecting it. I'd say in the last couple of decades, that environmental protection approach has fallen away quite considerably. And Vic Roads, you know, RZC itself is a big construction company in some ways. Mm. Um, so it's only on the back of this kind of agitation of local communities to protect what's been important to them. So, you know, important ecological assets um, of significance to those communities that this has been put back on the agenda. That It's been put back on the agenda really because, as I say, of the agitation and the campaigning of those community groups and, and a lot of really important hard work. Um, I wouldn't say necessarily that Vic Roads has, you know, opened this whole question up to the public. I think it's... it's um, well, I don't know if whether it's been half-hearted or reluctant, but it's been, um, you know, I don't know how, if it's been top of Vic Road's agenda. It's probably a question well, well worth putting to Vic Road's. Well, um, and, and, and interestingly enough, obviously, with your forum today, um, you know, last week we were speaking to uh, Gungara Environment Centre, Gecko, who, you know, were talking about a road being pushed into into the forest in preparation, obviously, to start the logging there at the Kwak um, Forest. So all of the all of these things, you know, can tie in together. We we woke up this morning to hear that there was a Supreme Court injunction which has secured uh, and put a hold on logging old growth forest in the Quark, um old growth in the Quark forest as well. So even that whole idea of you know knocking down trees to put in a road somewhere so that logging can start, they all tie in together at some point, don't they? 
Well, yes, very true. And I would tra- I would congratulate my colleague at EJA, Daniel Jacobs, who was instrumental in that inter- in, in that injunction um, around the quark. Uh, as an aside, but yes, look, road building is instrumental in um, in other activities like logging, as you say, um, and it can be very controversial because that kind of road building is instrumental in access to um, to those logging areas. Um, that's slightly different equation because you know the, partly the regime, the legal and regulatory regime around logging in those areas or the loss of that of, mm. is, is different. Yes, that's true. Um, road building is still a fundamental exercise. So, th- what's important to bear in mind with roadside reserves, um, so where roads already exist and so forth, um, that say Vic roads or local government are responsible for, is there is there are regulatory controls around how that. Um, how that is to work and how um, harm and, and loss of native vegetation on those roads work, but there's a there's a few problem there's a few problems with it. It's it's um, it's not particularly there's not a particularly high degree of um, rigor around around some of those laws. Um, uh, there's quite a few loopholes you know, to allow um, agencies like the Roads to um, clear. And remove and, and continue to do kind of road building in those areas. And what this has done in, over a long period of time is it really leads to a lot of incremental loss of important areas of native vegetation. Um, and, 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 is that, and would that be because people like myself who, you know, can't even tell the difference between, uh, I don't know, uh, a, a maple or, uh, you know, a, a, an azalea or whatever, don't really care. People who drive past, uh, you know, who live in the city wouldn't even understand what those, the significance of those, um, you know, plants are or the, the, the growth and vegetation on the roadsides. Well, look, maybe, and maybe people don't really think about the fact that if you, instead of having a two-lane, you know, highway out in Western Victoria, you've all, all of a sudden got a, a four-lane highway where you can go 110 instead of 100. Yeah. They don't necessarily understand really what's behind that. really important for most people, yeah. Well, you know, and to be perfectly honest, I think in the whole scheme of things, the difference between being able to go 100 and 110 is not that great. And mm. I think it's, it's a matter of priority. It Maybe it's more worthwhile retaining two, two or 300-year-old big old trees that are yeah. very important for wildlife. And to be honest, look better than a four-lane highway, in my honest opinion, but that's my opinion. Um, uh, so it's, to some degree it's a question of priorities and it is a question of what people see I suspect if people were driving down some nice country lane and all of a sudden and you know they thought what a beautiful roadside and it's covered with trees and yeah. so forth all of a sudden if that was widened and all those tree corridors were knocked down uh, and you had a two lane highway there they might make it it might be noticeable and I guess that's why a lot of the local communities have decided to organise and campaign around these issues because they do see those things. Yeah. Because they're out there quite a lot and these things are important to them. Um, but I think it is worth, it is mindful for those who are driving around Victoria to, you know, perhaps look outside of the box and not just down the road and think, well, what is, what is it, what is here and what is important? And, sure. and um, it's, uh, it's one of those conversations I think we can have for quite some time, but just, um, quickly, let us know how people can. If, if is the forum um, available, yep. open to people today to attend? Yep, so the yep. forum, yes, everyone can come along. Um, so the forum is about uh, so the ecological, cultural, and social values of the Victorian roadside in terms of tech, uh, various values. Uh, it's um, on from one thirty this afternoon. 
uh, at the Green Building, which is at 60 Leicester Street in Carlton. Fantastic. And, uh, in, in addition to me doing the introductions, um, we've got Dr. Greg, Greg Moore from Botany at University of Melbourne speaking, and Dr. Rodney Van Der Rie, um, who is from um, Melbourne University as well, and he's the author of a great text called The Handbook of Road Ecology. Fantastic. Thanks for giving us that. So it's 60. Some people might say Leicester. Some people might say Leicester. Um, just so they, they, don't they may do. Yeah, yeah, they may, because it's L-E-I. Um, S-C-U-T, whatever it is. But thanks. Um, we really appreciate you joining us, and good luck um, today with with the forum. And thanks for giving us an insight uh, into you know what Public Land Advocacy Network um, are all about. Great, thank you. Thanks, Bruce. And that was Dr. Bruce Lindsay from Plan talking about roadside ecological and cultural and social values. 3CR is very proud to announce the launch of the Beyond the Bars 2017 CD. OK, Papa, you're up to go and see the bail justice. I don't want to go and see him. I say, no, I won't worry about it, you know. Sure enough, here comes the truck. I'm going to Dame Phyllis. Come along to Mesa at 184 Gertrude Street, Fitzroy, on Thursday the 2nd of November from 6 till 8pm. The launch will feature a live panel discussion on Aboriginal incarceration, Q&A and deadly music. Oh, like, I don't regret being in jail, not one bit. Solitude and centeredness is difficult to find in the centre of chaos. So this has become, unfortunately enough, a place to be by myself and away from all that other stuff. And, and there's, less, there's less chaos in here than there is out there. Beyond the Bars 2017 CD launch, Thursday 2nd of November, upstairs at Mesa, 6 till 8pm. If you love 3CR, then why not support us by setting up a regular donation? You decide how much and how often you donate, and once it's set up, you don't have to think about it. Monthly, weekly, annually, you decide, and there's no minimum amount. Your donation is also 100% tax deductible, and you can claim the entire amount back via your tax return, knowing you are directly diverting Commonwealth funds to keeping your favourite station operating. It's the easiest way to grow 3CR. So if this works for you, sign up. Go to 3cr.org.au slash donate or call the station on 9419 8377. It's Fiesta time at Pepper Tree Place. Indulge in the magic of Fiesta in the beautiful garden surrounds at 512 Sydney Road, Coburg. Located opposite the old Pentridge Prison, Pepper Tree Place is a community-powered garden and nursery. 11th of November, 10 till 4pm, Fiesta will feature a fabulous musical lineup with Jukebox Racket, Ukulele Yui, Tony Swain, George Washing Machine and the Thornberries. Sustainable lifestyle and garden workshops run all day for free. Our pop-up cafe serves great coffee and treats, plus barbecue and bakeries serving hot foods and garden fresh salads. All welcome at this family-friendly, alcohol-free day. A 3CR supporter. Everyone. Good morning, Rashida. 
You are listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Joining us now is Margaret Sinclair, chairperson of Refugee Action Collective. We're going to be discussing the appalling treatment of refugees on Manus Island and the blatant hypocrisy of Australia pointing its finger to nations that they deem, you know, that, oh, you've been breaching human rights, you've been doing this, but something right in front of their nose and they're not doing anything. So good morning, Margaret. Good morning, Rosita. How are you? Um, I'm, I'm fine. I'm much better off than anyone who's in a detention centre at the moment. Exactly. So could you please start by telling us the latest news? Uh, well, on Manus Island, um, yesterday morning the generators were taken away. One of them had run out of fuel, so it wasn't providing any electricity anyway. But the other one still had fuel in it, so they did have a chance of having a, probably a few more hours left of electricity, but that was taken away. Uh, last night, some of the men in Oscar compound dug themselves a well to um, get water, and um, but at the moment, uh, no one's had any food for a few days now. That's terrible. You know, it appears that the Australian authorities are playing the role of guardian of morality when it comes to showing off in the international scene. But are they even addressing the numerous human rights breaches carried out on Manus camp? That's exactly right. I think we have a government that wants to look good but doesn't want to do anything good. So I think um, actions speak louder than words and it was and has always been totally under the control of the Australian government to remove these men at any time, as indeed it's always been under the control of the Australian government to approve medical transfers. And as we saw probably on the ABC the other night, uh, on a regular basis, and this just isn't just Nauru, it's on Manus too, a lot of people have um, been denied medical treatment that they've needed because it wasn't available in PNG and um, there are people within Australian Border Force who overturn medical decisions. Right, and I, when I was preparing the interview, I kept thinking about what one of my professors used to say. He used to tell us that politicians only follow the public opinion. Like, so there must be something in people's mind that allow politicians to feel empowered to keep doing this or to keep ignoring the issue? Uh, that might well be the case. I think, I mean, it's, it's been a, a shock and a, uh, yeah, a real shock to me that there's been actually nothing much in mainstream media. So as far as public opinion goes, it really needs to be informed public opinion. And a lot of people just simply don't know what's happening so it's very hard for them to go up to their local politician and say that they disagree with government policies. We need to be better informed and unfortunately we've got a media that's, um, that seems to be colluding with the government. So it's very hard to, to get that public opinion to change. We're speaking to uh, Margaret Sinclair, the chairperson of Refugee Action Collective. Margaret, um, we know obviously some politicians like the Green Senator Nick McKim was on Manus Island and he, he said he'd seen firsthand the suffering of, you know, the 600 people there and, and he, he sort of talked about um, Peter Dutton easily qualifying as a monster. So there are some politicians who are, 
you know, trying to do their best. But we woke up this morning to, um, you know, a, a refugee sending message, a tweet out from Manus Island saying that, you know, it's 1am, refugees are, are, are digging into the ground to find water, to find water, and people are still awake. You mentioned to me earlier that you have... Uh, I've called an action for, for this weekend to try and help most of these people who were stuck there. That's right. So Refugee Action Collective called a rally for 2 o'clock in the afternoon this Saturday at the State Library. We only just decided this yesterday, so we're still trying to organise things, but we need boots on the ground. We need everyone to be there and to raise their voices and just let the government know that this is not acceptable at all. And, and I guess, um, you know, it, it, this is the, the, the topic that has been in the news, well, as much as it can be in the mainstream media over the last sort of um, 48 hours for us. But, you know, there is still the issue of the 500,000 Rohingya refugees who are being forced out of Man, uh, Myanmar. So it seems like, um, you know, there, there are a lot of... Um, um, situations uh, around the world which are, are really um, leading to a, a, a very, very immediate crisis. Absolutely. I mean, people don't choose to be refugees. It happens because because of the circumstances they find themselves in. And it's either war or it's persecution of some sort. And we just need to have more governments who are willing to step up and say no to the human rights abuses that are happening around the world and just agree not to not to keep waging war. I mean, the Middle East is just a, a mess. Um, and as, as far as Myanmar goes, we need to have more than just tut-tut-tutting from our foreign minister saying, oh, that's a terrible thing to happen there. We actually need to be taking action. We could very easily take in... 20,000 people from these camps. We could very easily be part of a regional, a regional approach where we have peacekeepers down on the ground because we need to make these countries safer in this region and we need to stop turning back the boats. We need to start accepting that people will take any means necessary to try and save their lives and that action to save their lives has a higher priority than the method of transportation that they use. That's right, and it's very powerful when you said we have to stop turning them down. They're not leaving um, a beautiful space and just felt like moving to Australia. They are uh, persecuted where they're from. So what can our listener do? Because you're organizing rally, but do you have any other tips? Because we really feel that we need to do more. Um, I, I know that there's another movement that's been started up um, around Australia by uh, an Australian author, Isabel Carmody, and it's called I Am Watching, and that's the hashtag that's been used, I Am Watching, and people around Australia are, are just standing outside their local member's office and holding up placards with um, you know, requests for a change in policy highlighting the abuses that are happening on Manus Island at the moment and asking to see their local member. It doesn't take a very long time to make a phone call to, to um, our Prime Minister's office or to our Immigration Minister's office or to our local member. And even though it might be 
perhaps a little bit daunting for some people. All of these calls matter. All of the emails matter. All of the letters matter because they do get counted and it does alert politicians to the fact that there can be, or there hopefully is, a groundswell of opposition to the cruel practices that are perpetrated by this government. I totally agree with you. So the thing is, I'm a French citizen, so what I've noticed, I can't talk for all the Australian citizens, but would you think that you guys are not very political, not you in particular, because when I speak with friends and not people from 3CR, I've noticed they have feel very uncomfortable talking about refugees or talking about religion or talking about politics. It seems very shallow conversations. It, you only have to come to 3CR office to start talking about those issues. So do you think people feel awkward? Um, I suppose if, if this is new to a person, it might feel a bit awkward, but um, I think it's still well worth doing, and the more you practice something, the less awkward you start feeling. That's so right. Even, even if it feels a bit awkward, I think there's always value in standing up for what is right. Absolutely. Because if we don't speak up, who will? Exactly. Um, hi, I just had a question. There was a lot in the media a while ago about this US deal taking people from Manus. Do you know what's happening with that? Is that a thing? Is that not a thing? Yeah. Um, well, nobody said it's come to an end yet, but it's taken an entire year just to get 25 people off there. Mm. the time, three people have died. Mm. So um, we've had... And two of those deaths have happened... Um, outside the East Larengo Transit Centre because of a lack of medical health care. Now, whether the USD deal keeps continuing, there's no guarantee that there won't be more deaths unless people are taken immediately off Manus Island and brought to Australia. Even if, even if Australia is not the final destination, it's really the only solution to, to stop the loss of life and to help restore the health of people who have been held on Manus Island for over four years. Mm. Well, we woke up this morning with news that uh, Donald Trump wants to get rid of the green card, so it's going to be a, a very, very long time for those yes. um, Manus Island detainees to be able to get into the US because obviously he's got an agenda. He's had an agenda for a while. But, M Margaret, can I just ask, um, obviously there are organisations like... Uh, World Vision, the organisations like Medicine Sans Frontiers. At what point do organisations like that step in and do something? I mean, obviously at the moment, all staff, security and services have been abruptly withdrawn and there are currently no medical services there in Manus Island. You, you might not know the answer, but how do they get involved? I mean, the, the people are donating to them. Isn't this the perfect situation for somebody like Medicine Sans Frontiers to go and set up at a place like that to give them health services? I, I really, I'm really not too sure of the answer to that one. Yeah. It's great to no, I didn't think you would organisations be, yeah. going in. I know Amnesty was on the ground with um, Nick McKim the okay. other day, yeah. so they're still they're there on Manus Island. But nobody really has the power to change something except the Australian government. Mm. Even the UNHCR can't really step in in the sense that these people are in a country that um, has signed, you know, the the Refugee Convention, which is why they could be sent there but not to Malaysia, which hadn't signed um, the Refugee Convention. And Indonesia hasn't signed the Refugee Convention. So um, they can't 
everyone sort of maybe a little bit hamstrung as far as the large organisations go, but it's always been in the ball court of the Australian government to do something because it was the Australian government who selected these men out to be sent to Manus Island or to be sent to you know the, the families and the men to be sent to Nauru. But I'm not too sure if listeners are aware, but there were people from the exact same boats, from all of the boats that had arrived after the 19th of October, uh, 19th of July 2013, who are settled here in Australia. It's in the Senate Hansard. 1,414 people from the exact same boat are here in Australia. And the question gets asked, you know, how was how the selection made of who got to come to Australia and who got to be sent to Manus and Nauru? Hmm. Because families were split up and friends were split up. And it was across all the nationalities, and it didn't matter if someone was healthy or had obviously expressed, you know, uh, you know a, a, I suppose, a, a history of torture and trauma, or the reason really that they, you know, were seeking asylum. It was totally arbitrary. And I think if the Australian government can make a decision like that, then they can also very easily make a decision to bring everyone here. Nobody had to be sent there because they arrived on a boat. They were just sent there to to be um, to be used as some sort of human shield, imaginary human shield against people smugglers. Or, mm. That's what the official line is. But really, it's made no difference at all to borders or to boats or to people smugglers. It's just intentional cruelty, and it's just unacceptable. Margaret, we could talk about this for a while, but um, we will have to move on. So this Saturday, two p.m. Uh, rally for Manus Refugees at the State Library, so it's from 2 to 4, and we will touch base with you towards the end um, of November because obviously you've got a rally on Human Rights Day, December the 10th, so this is all about calling on Australia to take on at least 20,000 Rohingya refugees. We were going to talk about that, but obviously this is uh, more urgent, so we appreciate you joining us on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Thank you very much for the invitation. That was Margaret Sinclair. She was amazing, right? It's very important to organize an off-the-cuff event, you know, not waiting until the 10th of December. And we need to go on Saturday. And there's a, there's a great um, uh, hashtag, bring them home, but there's also a... Bring them here. Bring them here. So there's a... And the, you can call your politicians. Please, you need to call them. This is an emergency. It's not just a topic that... Sh- you need to talk about, you know, it's an emergency. So why don't you call Malcolm Turnbull? I give you his office number 0262777700. Just call 100 times if you have to. You can call Julie Bishop 0262777500. You can also call Bill Shorten 0262774022 and Call Tania Plebersek, 0262774404. Call, keep calling. It's, it's free. I mean, if you have a contract, call 10 times. Um, that was a track by Kate Risby called Fairly Well. Um, so up now, we're going to talk to Stephanie Price from the West Heidelberg um, Community Legal about the public housing renewal project. Hi, Stephanie. Welcome to 3CR. Thanks for having me. No worries. Can you just introduce yourself and the work that you do at um, the Community Legal? 
Um, well, we uh, West Hyderabad Community Legal Service is um, in West Hyderabad, which is a suburb which is um, has one of the highest proportions of public housing anywhere in the state. So, thirty or forty percent of the housing in West Hyderabad um, is public housing, and we assist public housing tenants and, and anyone in the area with um, with their general legal needs. But at the moment, we're doing work um, in particular around the public housing renewal program. Mm. Can you explain for our listeners that maybe don't know what uh, that program entails? Yeah, it's it's actually a pretty major um, proposal from the state government. Um, it's targeting at the moment around nine public housing estates um, across Melbourne. They'll be demolished um, and the land sold off predominantly to developers to build uh, private housing on the public land and the um, what is currently public housing will be um, rebuilt and in all likelihood will be um, handed over for management or ownership to um, community housing providers so in, in all likelihood won't be public housing anymore and what we know from the figures um, so far is that um, it appears in all likelihood that there'll be fewer um, bedrooms on the estates available for um, what's called social housing. So the units that will be rebuilt will be much smaller than what currently exists. Yeah. Um, that sounds really intense. I can't believe that they're trying to sell off, well, I can believe, actually, um, public housing to private developers. Um, can you explain a little bit about what the difference between public housing and social housing is? I guess I'm hearing social housing a lot and I'm still just a bit confused what actually that means. Yeah, I mean, it's it's reasonable to be confused because the intention of um, really using the word social housing is to confuse people. So social housing really is is what what the government describes as an umbrella term, so it, it technically includes public housing and community housing. Um, and the differences between public housing and community housing are that obviously, you know, public housing is owned by the government, managed by the government. Um, the Charter of Human Rights applies to their management of that property, and there's a whole range of you know, fairly robust um, policies that, that apply to that management. Obviously, you know, we would say there's always improvements to be had, but there are um, some pretty good policies in place. Community housing, on the other hand, um, you know, it's not government-owned. They're sort of small, uh, not-for-profit organisations with, um, you know, ad hoc policies, um, you know, some better than others, mm-hmm. but certainly not the consistency um, and the transparency that you can expect from, from government. Yeah. I guess one of the things that's really great about public housing is really long tenancy rights, and so is that possibly a shift that will happen with social housing as well, if that's owned by organisations rather than the government? Yeah, that's certainly a real risk, that, that tenancies will, will be shorter. And, um, you know, one thing that we know about public housing is that some of the, um, you know, some of the forms of notices to vacate that are available to community housing tenants, uh, landlords and, and private landlords, aren't utilised by public housing. So, you know, no reason notices to vacate. Uh, they're not used by public housing. Um, and they are available to community housing landlords. So yeah. certainly the length of tenure can be less secure. And, and Stephanie, um, you know, the housing.vic.gov.au talks about this $185 million program uh, and they talk about it creating vibrant neighbourhoods with housing that is safe, secure and modern. But... I like, uh, and I think you and Grace touched on it, these states will have a mix of social and private housing. And it also says on the website at least 10% more social housing properties. You mentioned that they're going to be smaller. How, you know, it seems like the government's just trying to sell it as something that is going to be good. But from what you're sort of talking about, you know, there's going to be some some pretty negative um, uh, aspects of it. 
Yeah, I mean, they, they, they're they coming at it at a different angle from the way some governments have in the past. So they are framing it as, you know, a renewal. They're saying, you know, these estates are um, dilapidated and need repair, um, so we're renewing the estates. And, you know, uh, to some degree we, we would agree um, that, you know, a number of the public housing properties do need um, improvements and repair. Certainly not all of the estates mm. that are being targeted in that condition. A lot of the people who live on these estates say that their housing is fine. Um, you know, some basic maintenance would be sufficient for them. Mm. But they are framing it um, as a renewal. But sort of, you know, we can see that that's really just um, a ruse to sell off the bulk of the land so the bulk of the absolute bulk of the land will will no longer be used for um, you know social housing. It'll be sold privately, and and they are saying, look, there'll be a ten percent increase in the units. But we've sort of sat down and gone through the numbers of you know which what what units are going and what units will be rebuilt. And most estates are going backwards in terms of how many ha- people will be able to be housed on these estates in in social housing. Mm-hmm. So at West Heidelberg, we lose I think fifty or sixty bedrooms. Is but fewer people will live there in, and in public housing. And families too, you know, by the sounds of it. So if they're, like when you say there'll be less bedrooms, I'm thinking that they'll just be, build like one-bedroom studio apartments because yeah, maybe that's, that's, that's easier. So then where are the families going to go that live on that state at the moment or need to be moving into public housing for various reasons in the future? Exactly. And and, and there is absolutely a need for one-bedroom units. The, the, totally. There's a growing number of people on the housing waitlist that need one-bedroom units. So the government is right to build one-bedroom units. It's wrong to um, to do that at the cost of, you know, the three- and four-bedroom homes because there's certainly also a need for three- and four-bedroom homes. So we say, yes, build, um, you know, thousands more one-bedroom units, build thousands more two-bedroom, build thousands more three-bedrooms. All of these things are in need. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering if you know what the numbers are that are on the public housing waiting registry at the moment? It's 35,000 um, at the moment. And it's sort of double that um, who would be uh, eligible to be on that list but for various reasons aren't on the, on the specific wait list. Mm. And, and is that only in the metro area, Steph, or would you say Victoria-wide? That's Victoria-wide. Okay, yeah. Um, I heard recently that they were planning on after um, the nine estates in Melbourne have been renewed that they're going to take this program all over Victoria as well. Yeah, that's the idea. So I think they want to see, uh, you know, if they can roll this out. It's a it's a big um, proposal, so, you know, they'll, they'll see how it goes. It'll it take a lot of work um, from their perspective. And, you know, I imagine they wanted to sort of test out the level of um, opposition. Yeah. But, yeah, certainly what we're hearing is that if, if it um, goes ahead and, and they're happy with it, then the plan is to, to roll it out across across Victoria. Yes, but I don't... Which would be a major, major, major um, attack on, you know, what is a a central public asset in this state. Mm. But I wonder if any of the developers um, are going to be happy with uh, land that's probably not as good as the uh, Olympic Village in West Heidelberg, you know, or in really, really prime real estate spots if they were going to sort of have to go and remodel places and places like Warrnambool, would the developers be willing to go and do that? Well, most of the estates are in Metro Melbourne, so they've they've picked nine to start with. There's, yeah, that's there's right. many, many mm. more. That but they when can, they roll they it can... out, will they go then rural? I guess it comes back to the question where I asked you about the people on the waiting list. You know, is it Metro or is it the whole of Victoria? What do you do with people outside of the, the metropolitan area to make sure that they get great public housing and community housing as well? 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's a good question, but, but you know, we would say that they should um, they should build a you know a variety and a mix of forms of housing in in the variety of places across the state because yeah. you know people in need um, you know are, are spread across the state. Mm. Mm. Um, I guess the other thing I've been hearing about this with the government arguments is about um, the benefits of mixing. Uh, people on that living in public house with people that are living in private rental and how that will have some great social benefits. I was wondering if you could speak to that. I know that there was a report released about what happened in Carlton recently. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, people who are um, much better versed in the sort of theory behind this idea mm-hmm. um, have, have written reports into this. And Kate Shaw is, um, <clears throat> sorry, one academic from Melbourne University has written extensively about this. Um, and she's actually made a submission to the parliamentary inquiry that's happening at the moment about the public housing renewal program. And she essentially says, look, this is an absolute furphy and it's a cover for gentrification. It's just a cover for um, allowing, you know, the sort of um, the, the private property to further squeeze out anything, you know, any social or community or public housing. And so on the estates where it's, where it's already been rolled out, so Carlton, for instance, mm. um, she says all you have, in fact, is a, is a further concentration of the disadvantage because the, the social housing is, is concentrated even into a smaller area of land because, you know, the, the public housing just expands across the, um, the public land. But in addition to that, she says the whole notion um, doesn't really apply to, you know, places like Australia and certainly um, Melbourne, we don't have a situation where we have public housing in, you know, sort of ghettoised um, whole entire areas of disadvantage and poverty. Poverty. We have our public housing located in really quite ideal, central, connected areas of Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that when I heard about that, it didn't really make sense to my head either because I feel like we're not living in London with massive estates or anything either. Um, exactly. So the estates are in Fitzroy. Um, you know, Paran, uh, you know, Flemington, North Melbourne, these are, these are, you know, highly sought after places to live. So there's no sense that the public tenants that live there, um, you know, are locked off from, from the opportunities of, you know, work, employment and, sorry, work in education and transport. Mm. But the people who live on these estates as well, um, to hear them describe their communities, you can see that they, you know, they're really opposed to this notion that that there's something wrong with the way that they live and that they need, um, you know, a different form of of social mix. Yeah. Um, So I guess just to wrap up, my last question would be what's going to happen? Is there any talk about that of the people that are living in these council estates when they, if they manage to sell them off and then redevelop them? So what happens to them? Yeah, like there's... um, people that are living in these council estates or public housing at the moment and what's going to happen to them when they redevelop the area? Yeah, I mean, that's 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 the real issue for the people that live there at the moment. They're, they're very unsure about what happens to them. Mm. You know, they're being told various things. They're being told that they will be able to come back onto their estates. Um, they're also being told that the government doesn't expect um, or isn't relying on very many of them actually coming back. Um, so they're calculating something like 20% of um, people who live there currently will come back. But what we know from just looking at the plans is um, the maths doesn't work out. So the people who are leaving, um, if all of them wanted to come back, it's not feasible, it's not possible. There won't be the houses available um, for all the people that will be um, displaced from the estates. Yeah. 
Right, and lastly, how do people um, get involved in the campaign and find out more information? Well, there's a um, you know there's a campaign um, which is being organised by by a, um, a network which is a coalition of different groups it's called the Public Housing Defence Network. Um, we've got a rally coming up on the 11th of November at one o'clock at the Northgate Estate mm-hmm. um, to sort of tie in with the Northgate by-election which the um, state government is is fighting there. Um, there's also a parliamentary inquiry which is going on at the moment. Um, you can just sort of Google parliamentary inquiry, public housing renewal program. If you support public housing and are opposed to, um, you know, massive public sell-off of public assets, um, you can make a submission. It can be a sentence, a paragraph or, you know, a, an essay if you'd like. Um, but we really encourage people who support public housing to engage with that process. Thanks, Steph joining us no on 3CR Thursday Breakfast and it's uh, yeah, it's great insight into uh, I guess what um, some people have to go through and what they're going to go through mm. with what the public re- public housing renewal program is all about. So thanks for joining us. Yep. Thanks for having me. That. And it's 8.05 on 3CR, and that was. <laughs> we forgot to back announce Stephanie Price from the West Heidelberg Community Legal Centre. Um, there's got so many organisations out there. I mean, mm. from me reading the website from the Victorian government, it just sounds so pretty. You know, $185 million. I know, so much spam. Yeah. <laughs> I had to go to this. 10% um, more social housing. Yeah. I had to go to this social housing event last Thursday. Actually, I left oh, here a bit yes. earlier. It was so weird sitting in a room full of developers um, and the government talking about this and talking about other social housing stuff as well. Yeah. But just the amount of spin that comes out of them and saying that it's, you know, social housing is amazing, it's going to be great, and mm. it's actually this really scary shift from government own organisations and right. programs and stuff into the community sector and then what happens in five, ten years in the community sector, like they all get defunded and then it's everyone's private, you know, for-profit organisations yes. yeah. that are doing this role, which well, I think is this shift that we've seen uh, in Australia over, you know, decades, but it's really It would have to scary. be decades. Because yeah, um, during, I think, was it the Commonwealth Games that we had here in Melbourne? Mm-hmm. You know, just behind the State Hockey Centre there near the freeway, they they had all of that public land and they used that to build the accommodation for all the athletes, right? But as soon as the Commonwealth Games finished, all of those houses went into the hands of the developers who built them to Mm. sell them off. So, yeah, that shift has been happening for a while. But just quickly before we get to our next guest, who's going to talk to us really about some of the government rhetoric that might be happening too, um, it's finally here, our Beyond the Bars CD Launch. So come along to the launch of the Beyond the Bars 2017 CD, a double CD of highlights from this year's NADOC Week Prison Broadcasts. Um, join us upstairs at the Maystar, which is 184 Gertrude Street, Fitzroy. Um, this evening from 6 till 8pm, the launch will feature a live panel discussion on Aboriginal incarceration. Um, questions and answers and some awesome music and there will be free CDs, snacks and drinks available. It has disability access as well. And it's an alcohol free event. Um, I would get down there, especially for the free CDs part (laughs) because there's some (laughs) awesome songs. And the live panel. Yeah. (laughs) 
you love 3CR, then why not support us by setting up a regular donation? You decide how much and how often you donate, and once it's set up, you don't have to think about it. Monthly, weekly, annually, you decide, and there's no minimum amount. Your donation is also 100% tax deductible, and you can claim the entire amount back via your tax return, knowing you are directly diverting Commonwealth funds to keeping your favourite station operating. It's the easiest way to grow 3CR. So if this works for you, sign up. Go to 3cr.org.au slash donate or call the station on 9419 3CR Breakfast would like to say thanks to program sponsor The New International Bookshop for the financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall at 54 Victoria Street, Carlton. Palestine National Day is being celebrated on November the 15th, 5pm at Federation Square. Join us as we raise the Palestinian flag. Hear Palestinian youth sing the Palestinian National Anthem. Palestinian band 48 will perform traditional and resistance music. Join our dance and dubkey crew and enjoy Palestinian food and culture in this family event. See you there. Palestine National Day, November 15th, 5pm at Federation Square. Be there. 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR 855 AM. It's, uh, where does the time go? Where does the time go? Um, recently, well, two days ago, we woke up to news that, um, the Andrews government had made an announcement about a safe ejecting room trial, um, which was to go for two years. Thursday breakfast, um, in late August spoke with Craig, who was from uh, Victoria's Drug Drug Solutions, and what they were doing at the time, they were having a march to save lives, which was a, a rally for medically supervised injection centre. Um, but today we are getting joined by our... Um, Residents for Victoria Street Drug Solutions spokesperson Margot Foster to give us a follow-up into um, some of the fantastic work that they've been doing and I guess what they expect to happen when this trial starts. Good morning, Margot. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Uh, I know when you and I spoke yesterday, um, you gave me a little bit of an insight as to how... um, RVSDS started. It started over a cup of coffee. Obviously, it's a group of residents who live in the area. Um, you know, wanted to to make a, a difference to their community. But you must have been um, delighted um, to finally uh, hear from Premier Andrews that uh, a trial for medically supervised injecting centre was going to be possible. Look, it was actually very emotional. It was surprisingly affecting to be down there to hear the announcement from not just Daniel Andrews but a a range of ministers including the police minister, the minister for mental health and uh, there was representation from the police and the ambulance emergency services. It was overwhelming. Uh, Some of the bereaved families had come along to make sure they could hear with their own ears the outcome. um, I've actually lived in the area for over 25 years and so a lot of us have got very direct experience of, of living in an area which is 
increasingly um, a tide of misery, if you like, in the streets. And so we did not expect it to happen so quickly. It was uh, overwhelming and incredibly comprehensive. It's actually a package. It's not just a a medically supervised injecting centre. So we're really, really, really happy with the outcome, I can tell you. Um, and I think, you know, when Craig was here, he mentioned things like living there and then, you know, having people in your front yard. And I think you mentioned to me yesterday, like, you can't even have taps at, at the front of your house because obviously, you know, that means accessibility to water. But in that context, um, you, as residents, you acknowledge that there's been tragic loss of life and suffering, which has been endured by parents, siblings and grandparents. And now, um, you know, you've got the, the, the you've had the courage and the passion to make sure that you can deliver something that will help those siblings, those parents and the people affected um, and by providing them a safe space over the next 24 months to come in and hopefully, you know, you're not uh, subjected to some pretty stringent uh, regulations by, by the, uh, the government. No, I think it, what, what's on offer looks really promising. We were really gratified that they are using the um, King's Cross uh, medically supervised injecting centre which has been going since 2001 as the model so that'll be the template that they're basing the centre on and uh, you know it, it has been the most evaluated uh, trial that went on for 10 years mm. um, and, and has now got independent status so it's able to function It's the legislation has gone through it is a functioning uh, medically supervised injecting centre it is, it's lost its trial status, but that took 10 years. I expect our medically supervised injecting centre to also undergo the same rigorous evaluation um, within the community and looking at its impact and looking at its outcomes. And, you know, in the whole world, not one overdose death has been documented in a medically supervised injecting centre. So it's not just Sydney that can boast about that, it's the world. (laughs) So... If we can save lives, this is the most pressing thing. I can't tell you, Dean, what it feels like as a resident to be confronted daily by uh, life and death situations or the, you know, the sadness and the inconvenience and the loss of amenity, uh, the protection of... I, I pedalled to the gym and I came back, I saw seven uncapped syringes lying in the street outside the primary school just mm. last week. It's, um, I've, I've, I've run down the street when I saw a neighbour's little boy wanting to go jump in the puddle on a wet day. I rushed out with my little container to pick up syringes. And people are doing that. Parents are getting, have to get out in the streets and clean the street before they can let their children loose, basically. And I think it's, um, it's been very wearing and it's a range of emotions that you go through. But underlying it has always been, with this residence group, a basis of compassion for the people who are victims of addiction and yeah. people who are victims of homelessness. And I think that's why our campaign has been the missing link that was needed because for 20 years we've been calling for a medically supervised injecting centre. The Yarra Council's been calling for it and had it presented to, to state government year after year. So the push has, has, has is long-standing However, the voice of the residents has never been part of the equation. And it was really at the first uh, coroner's inquiry early um, this year 
that um, the residents came to the table and we made numerous submissions to that and, inquiry and we were heard. And I think this is the, um, you know, the first step in your community uh, healing process in itself. You know, you're besieged that you sort of live 24-7 with people taking drugs in a myriad of public places. Um, and before we sort of talk about that, do you... Uh, it sounds like a strange question, but have you had people who have opposed what your movement has been about, saying, you know, why would you give people the, the, the freedom to do that in your You do local... hear that. Yeah. You do hear that. Which... One of the very first things we did um, was put out a, a little leaflet called uh, 10 Facts about these medically supervised injecting centres. Now, you can throw any of those arguments at me and I can refute them based on evidence. This is... Compassion was one aspect of our campaign, but education, public education, for all of us personally, mm. as well as for the public, means so much. People say, oh, you know, we don't want to spend all this money on these people, then they can choose not to take drugs. Well, the, in Sydney, King's Cross, for example, that centre, that is proceeds of, it's funded by the pro, um, confiscated proceeds of crime. So it does, it's not a big hole in a health budget. So that's one thing. So if it's about money, bang, you can knock that out. If it's about a honeypot, you can knock that out because that has not been the experience in Sydney. Uh, they're already here, you know. The people are coming here already. What we're going to do is actually funnel them into a safe environment where they can use and be on their way and, and go about their lives and also have access to support services, which are so desperately needed. Um the um, it, 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 it's just going to um, it'll save lives. That's the main thing. Yeah. This is the big thing, yeah. and, and that's proven in Sydney. And what we know now, if we're having one death every ten days just in our tiny precincts, we have got to do something. It's an absolute crisis, and this has been acknowledged at last. And um, I, I know there's there's been a few. So obviously, with this announcement, means the hard work then starts to begin. And, and I guess you're all, you know, going to keep continuing your, your, your advocacy. Um, do you, is it, is it, is there a timeline or do, is it still have to go through Parliament to finalise a few of the details? And do you have an, any idea of, you know, when, yeah, look, um, it, it's going to start? Well, yeah. I think, um, I think it's pretty secure, this bill. It was introduced on the 31st, which was Tuesday, by yeah. the um, Martin Foley. It passed the first reading in the Legislative Assembly. It was A second reading was moved on yesterday, and that means it progresses to the Legislative Council. Now, I can't see any further debate, to be honest, given that it's passed so comprehensively with the support of um, a lot of independents and the Greens. And... Um, Unless there's major amendments to it that are called for, um, I think it's it's safe. I mean, everybody's taught speaking as if it's a, um, you know, it's a matter of a process from now. It will happen really quickly, though. I mean, to, it will be up and running by next June. Those um, part of the package is those rehab beds. There's, yeah. They're mm -hmm. doubling the number of um, those sort of resources, and that that time frame is actually. Um, Longer. March, than, yeah, March that's right. I think the government to have said, those beds in place. So, yeah, yeah. You know, they were looking at within the, the next six months. Yeah, absolutely. But our role, I mean, the residents group can't just go home and um, kick back now. Yeah. 
That process of public education has been absolutely integral in our campaign and we still, we're still running information nights. We've got a senator from Canada coming to talk to us about the experience there with the medically supervised injecting centres. Um, uh, that'll be, uh, that's coming up next in, in the next week. And we're also going to continue knocking on the head some of the um, furfies that are around about, you know, even down at the announcement, there was somebody talking about the location near a school. Now, that that is just a non-argument because the principal of the school is totally supportive. The, the school community there knows their children are already having to go past people actively dealing, using and dying in that very close precinct. This centre will really remove all of that and they're going to actually... Um, they'll be, make um, alterations to the precinct to separate the um, medically supervised injecting centre from the visibility of the school. So, I mean, that's all well understood. So there's a lot of work to be done. The evaluation, we are told that the residents' group will have a part to play in the evaluation, and that's really promising and pleasing. I think there'll be things that we'll be looking at. Um, some of the constraints are that it only deals with heroin uh, um, use in the centre. Yeah. It doesn't mean that it's, there's no drugs provided in the centre. That's another... Yeah, that's, a, that's a big furphy, you know, people who go around yeah. saying, you know, it's, oh, you, oh, it's just saying no to drugs because we're paying and taxpayers are paying for it. It's like, well, the injecting room is not a pharmacy. It's, no. <laughs> yeah, it's a place where people go to get help. Can I say something, Dean? I, my experience when I was first anxious and upset and angry and feeling very impotent about the devastation that I was witnessing and my neighbour and I talked about it and we just educated ourselves. What we did was got onto uniting.org, which is a fantastic website of King's Cross. Um, uniting, it's called, is the uh, church auspices that has set it up. And um, they've got a very, very um, informative website. Yeah. yeah, it's really worth a look. That's where we went. We just Googled. We found out what was happening in Portugal, Canada, other places. We looked for the... We read the evaluations, the annual evaluations that they had to do under when they were in, at their trial status. You've got to get the information. And some of the people who are going, yeah, give us CCTV... Well, that might be a good gut reaction, but it's not proven to do anything to save lives mm. or to help people. CCTV, I think it was something for the traders, and all it did was push people down the side street, yeah. basically. Mm. And, and Margaret, so, we, we yeah. um, sorry, we're sort of coming towards the end, but we, I think yeah. that's the main reason why we got somebody, you know, like you and Craig to come on the show because as residents of Victoria Street, you represent Yarra residents, you know, from the Vic Street precinct to support fixed um, position medically supervised injection centres. But you've also, you know, have a little bit of a lived experience, but you've also shared some information to people about what it's like to actually live 24-7 with people who are obviously, um, you know, not really in control of their lives as well. Yeah. 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 Um, so your, the, the website itself, I think it's, um, I always get, get it wrong. Can you just uh, let our listeners know so that they can, yeah, go in there and, and show their support to you as well? Yeah, um, www.vicstreetdrugsolutions.org. 
All one word. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Hopefully, um, we'll make our way down to the uh, unveiling, whether it's in March or June. But uh, we appreciate you joining us on Thursday breakfast. Thanks so much for your interest, Dave. And that was uh, Margot Foster, who is uh, yeah one of the residents, and uh, I guess um, you know the community groups, as we know, they are big agents for change. Um, and they do make things happen, which right? is fantastic. That's the proof. That's a group of friends, even like neighbors, can do something. Mm-hmm. And we did mention earlier that yeah. you know um, even groups like Echo, people getting together, have yeah. forced a Supreme Court injunction. Um, yeah. You know to stop the death of old growth forest. Um, there's lots of th- other community groups, Refugee Action Collective, yes. people who are not just sitting behind their white picket fence and uh, looking at uh, Netflix. Right. <laughs> 3CR is very proud to announce the launch of the Beyond Buzz 2017 CD. Okay, Parker, you're up to go and see the bail justice. I don't want to go and see him. I say, no, I won't worry about it, you know. Sure enough, here comes the truck. I'm going to Dame Phyllis. Come along to Mesa at 184 Gertrude Street, Fitzroy on Thursday the 2nd of November from 6 to 8pm. The launch will feature a live panel discussion on Aboriginal incarceration, Q&A and deadly music. Oh, like, I don't regret being in jail, not one bit. Solitude and centeredness is difficult to find in the centre of chaos. So this has become, unfortunately enough, a place to be by myself and away from all that other stuff and... and there's less, there's less chaos in here than there is out there. Beyond the Bars 2017 CD launch, Thursday 2nd of November, upstairs at Mesa, 6 till 8pm. The Solidarity and Defence Fund is a democratically controlled fund that materially supports activists who are facing legal sanctions or other problems due to their stand against injustice and oppression. All contributors who pledge at least $5 a month can take part in collectively making decisions about how the fund is used. Your contributions support and grow movements for social justice and defend activists in the fight for a better world. For more information or to join, go to patreon.com forward slash solidarity defence fund. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Solidarity Defence Fund. A 3CR supporter. It's fiesta time at Pepper Tree Place. Indulge in the magic of fiesta in the beautiful garden surrounds at 512 Sydney Road, Coburg. Located opposite the old Pentridge Prison, Pepper Tree Place is a community-powered garden and nursery. 11th of November, 10 till 4pm, Fiesta will feature a fabulous musical lineup with Jukebox Racket, Ukulele Yui, Tony Swain, George Washing Machine and the Thornberries. Sustainable lifestyle and garden workshops run all day for free. Our pop-up cafe serves great coffee and treats, plus barbecue and bakeries serving hot foods and garden fresh salads. All welcome at this family-friendly, alcohol-free day. A 3CR supporter. We're back on 855am. It's time uh, to thank our guests. We had uh, from the Public Land Advocacy Network, Dr. Bruce Lindsay. There's a, there's a forum today um, where they're talking about uh, ecological, cultural and social values of Victorian roadsides. It's at uh, the Green Room, 60 Leicester Street, Carlton. 
we had at 7.30 Margaret Sinclair about, we talked about the crisis in Manus Island. Please, they need your help. This is a crisis. Call your MP. Make some noise because they are refugees. They are human beings. They are not dogs. And there's a rally this Saturday at the State Library from yes. 2 till 4. Yes. Um, at 7.45, we talked to Steph Price from the West Heidelberg Community Legal Centre about um, the new government initiative of the Public Housing, housing Renewal Project, project yeah. which basically means they're going to sell off um, nine estates yeah. of uh, public housing across Melbourne, in, mostly in the inner city. $185 million it's project. Scary. Yeah. It's, it's, just, very it's scary. just really a way of selling off public assets. Yeah, to totally. Yeah. They're going to sell <laughs> off um, the estates and then uh, give them to private developers who are going to uh. make a mix of private housing and social housing. Yes, please. and no use of the word community housing. Um, and we've got... Um, Wednesdays at 6 o'clock, it's always quite a good show to tune into. Raise the Roof. So it's all about community voices, housing, tenancy mm. and disability. Um, and I'm sure they'll follow up on, uh, on this as we continue on. And we just had Margot Foster um, talking um, to us about the fantastic uh, announcement of the trial injecting rooms by the Andrews government two days ago, which is going to be happening at the, I call it, North Richmond uh, Health um, Centre, which will be in the next six months or so. Um, so, yeah, hopefully the residents there can, you know, keep a- um, advocating for education and teaching people about um, some of the harmful effects of drugs. And that's our show. We'll be uh, hopefully back next week. Don't forget, be on the Bar CD launch at 6 till 8 Today, I've lost the address, but go to 3cr.org.au to find out more. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.